Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, July 18th, we are studying Psalm 90. In today's text, Moses contemplates the temporary nature of this life and invites us to look for hope in the everlasting God. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Vandercook. Pastor Vandercook serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumelle, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good to be with you again. So we get started today, Pastor Vandercook. Talk to us generally about the book of Psalms. How do we need to approach this book as Christians? Well, obviously, the book of Psalms is a little bit different than uh, most of the other books of the Bible in that it's it's written over a period of literally thousands of years um, because we have uh, authorship from, from the beginning of God's people, well, at least as early as the one we're talking about today, uh, a psalm written by Moses, and then we have psalms written by David much later. Uh, so um, it's really a collection of, of individual hymns or songs or, or prayers that are kind of all compiled together. Uh, and they are divided into books, um, but even those divisions into books uh, don't really have a clear, this is from this era, this is from this era, this is from this era, or anything like that. Um, but the Psalms really provide a basis for us for um, how to pray uh, and how to, by extension of that, how to sing as the people of God, uh, because this, this really is the hymn book of the Bible. Um, and uh, still today, the Psalms very much shape our prayer life. Um, the Psalms appear throughout our liturgy, uh, regardless of whether that's one of the prayer offices like Matins or Vespers, or whether that's the opening versicles for uh, you know, like Divine Service Setting 3. Uh, you know, we have opening versicles there that also come from the Psalms. We sing one of the Psalms in the, uh, um, uh, the it's right on the tip of my tongue, the, the offertory. offertory. There we go, the offertory. Yes, the offertory. And then, uh, you know, and, and yeah, the offertory in both Divine Service Setting 3 and Setting 1, just different offertories using different psalms. Uh, and then in addition to that, you know, you have the canticles that we use in the in the prayer offices that often come from the psalms as well. Uh, so anyway, we have, you know, the, the psalms uh, serve that purpose of being the, uh, the songs that the church continues to sing uh, and also uh, does very much shape the prayer life of the church as well. So talk to us more specifically about Psalm 90. What kind of context, historical background do we need to know for this psalm? Well, the, the inscription at the beginning of the psalm indicates that this is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And uh, so, you know, you then want to take into account, well, okay, who is Moses? And of course, we all know Moses well, as far as what he did leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. Um, but also, we know that Moses uh, authored 
the first five books of the Bible. And so he authored the creation account for us and the early history of God's people leading all the way up into their entrance into the promised land. So, you know, while we don't have a specific uh, date which we can necessarily pin on this particular psalm, it's during the lifetime of Moses that he writes, you know, during his lifetime, obviously, that he writes this. But it's clear from reading it that uh, there is this idea that, um, you know, Moses has in mind the creation, especially in the opening verses of the psalm, Uh, but also a familiarity with the wrath of God, because, you know, during the time that Moses leads the Israelites, obviously they experience the wrath of God as well as the mercy of God, and both of those uh, play play a role throughout this psalm. Mm. So... It, with it being a psalm of Moses, and I, I know we're not talking about all the psalms today, but this is probably one of the oldest psalms, if not the oldest, at least based on the ones that we know the author for? Right, yeah. You know, obviously we have a number of psalms that are uh, anonymous. Uh, we don't know who wrote them necessarily, uh, but this one likely, uh, very likely could be the oldest of the psalms that we have. That's right. So you mentioned both the the matter of creation is going to be involved here, the wrath of God and the mercy of God. Are there any other particular events within the life of Moses and the the ministry in terms of him being a leader for the people of Israel that might provide some context? Again, not that we can assign a specific event in which he wrote it, but you know, other things that happened in his life that provide some context. Well, yeah, and again, the challenge here is that because we don't know precisely when during his life he wrote this, we don't know necessarily which events he might have had in mind, but certainly we can look at the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites and see a lot of of this kind of interplay between God's mercy and God's wrath. Um, You know, you have the wrath of God being poured out on the people, uh, or at least the threat of God's wrath being poured out on the people, especially with the golden calf incident, uh, you know, where God there first uh, says that he's going to wipe out the entire people of Israel and start a new nation through Moses instead, and Moses intercedes for the people. Uh, Likewise, the bronze serpent uh, that Moses uh, is told to build by God after they cry out to him, after he sends the poisonous serpents to bite the people. uh, and, And of course, a lot of people died in both of those incidents, but also we see that God relents, and often the relenting comes after God or after Moses pleads for God, that he pleads with God that he would have mercy on them um, rather than wipe them off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you even have the, I think you can think about the flood as well, where you see the, the wrath of God poured out on um, the uh, Pharaoh and his army, but also the people of God being delivered uh, and the mercy of God being shown there. All right. The other thing that, that does strike me a little bit about Psalm 90 with this being a psalm of Moses, it's just the fact that it is Psalm 90. We've come this far in the book of Psalms, and now we get a psalm of Moses, perhaps the oldest one in the book. Here it is. It's at the start of book four, and there's not always, at least as far as I can tell, a rhyme or a reason as to why the psalms are ordered the the way they are, but it does seem significant to me, at least in some sense, that this starts book four and the last psalm of book three, Psalm 89, which is a very long psalm, and we didn't cover it here on Sharper Iron, but when you, you look over it, it talks about both the, the rise and the fall of, of David as a king and really the Davidic kingdom. And some of the questions at the end of Psalm 89, oh, for example, verse 46 of that psalm, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? 
How long will your wrath burn like a fire? Again in verse 49, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? It just, it strikes me as you see the people of Israel in that psalm thinking about their time under David and his his children as their kings. Where do they turn next? They go back to Moses. Uh, and I'm not sure what to make of that. Maybe, maybe it's Maybe there's nothing there, but it just it strikes me that you have that kind of juxtaposition at the end of three and at the beginning of four. Now we're going to turn back to Moses. That's just it seems like there's some wisdom there. Well, I would think so. I think there's there there very well might be something there because again, you know, as we'll see when we get into the text of the psalm itself, Moses takes us back to the beginning. So there's there's kind of that. I I suppose that's something I haven't really uh, spent a lot of time researching is the you know, these divisions of these books, um, you know, whether there was a specific, you know, you're supposed to work your way through this book and then move on to working your way through this book or or something like that. That could very well be what it was. But uh, uh, but unfortunately, uh, we don't have that spelled out for us explicitly anywhere, I suppose. <laughs> right. That's right. I know. That's I, I can't remember where I heard that. Someone told that to me and that that intrigued me. But I, yeah, I'm not sure exactly, like you're saying, how, what always to make of those divisions. So let's go ahead and take a look at the text. This is Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to the dust, and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. That's the text for today. It's Psalm 90. Pastor Vandercook, thinking about this psalm as a whole, how might we structure it? Maybe divide it up into to stanzas. Yeah, I, you know, as I as I was going through this, I I leaned a little bit on some of the other uh, outlines that I've seen. They all seem to follow this same basic um, train of thought here. The first couple verses give us basically the eternal nature of God, uh, how He has no beginning and He has no end. He has always been. Uh, and there's kind of that that solidness that is there. Uh, the God that created the universe has always existed and will always exist. He does not change. The second portion of the book, or um, not the book, the, the psalm, verses 3 through 6, really kind of addresses the frailty of human life and, uh, and also the sinfulness of man that 
uh, leads to that. And that's kind of built upon in 7 through 11, where the cause for the frailty of human life becomes expressed because it is the, um, uh, the sin of man that leads to him being frail, you know, that kind of brings us back into the fall into sin. And then the psalm ends with verses 12 through 17 with a prayer for God's mercy. Um, obviously, the whole psalm as a whole is really a prayer, but we get the specific petition really as we get to 12 to 17. And really, as I look at it, and I was thinking about this as I was uh, heading out to my uh, bike ride this morning, that the psalm almost kind of follows the same pattern that we have whenever we put together the, the collects that we use, the collect of the day each week uh, in, the, in the church here, that you have this, this address, you know, to God, followed by a rationale, uh, you know, basically that uh, the reason that we're praying to you, God, is because we know that you are able to do X. Um, and then you get into the, uh, the actual petition and then the, the benefit that you want from that petition. So um, I think I caught all those. But anyway, I kinda, you almost can kind of see that as you go through this psalm, that there is this address to God followed by a rationale. Here we actually have kind of a confession worked into this, but then also a, um, uh, you know, a, a petition toward the end with some rationale in there as well. Or not, right, not, yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right yeah. to see the the same pattern in the collects and here in Psalm 90, even with the way that the Lord is is named and called upon, that here Moses is going to call upon the Lord as the one who is eternal, and that's the reason for our hope when we see our own frailty. And that is true in, in a lot of the collects and the the name that God is is called upon, whether Heavenly Father or Almighty God or Good Shepherd of the Sheep, and a lot of times that is we use whatever title we do for God based on what we are asking him to do. So I, th I think you're right to see that here in Psalm 90 as well. So let's talk about those first couple of verses that talk about the eternal nature of God. Verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Help us just into that first one. Yeah, the idea behind a dwelling place is that it is always constant. I think this is a this is actually a very, this is a great comfort for us in the world, and I mean, I guess that's, you know, people have always said that, you know, the world is always changing, which is true. Mm -hmm. things, that, things in the world are constantly changing, constantly in flux. But the thing that doesn't change is, is God. He is constant, uh, you know, and so I think that's important for the church to understand as well, that there's good reason for us to consistently do the same thing, um, simply because the the world around us is changing at a rapid pace, and I and I do believe it is changing at an even more rapid pace uh, as time goes on. Uh, you know, when I think about how things were in society in general, even you know, 16 years ago when I get out of the seminary, it's radically different now. Um, but the thing that doesn't change is the church, is is God and His Word. This is a solid rock that we can rely upon and return to. Uh, and, and this is what Moses is directing us back to with the psalm as well. Lord, you've been our dwelling place through all generations. We know that we can count on you, Lord. We can go back to you because we know that you are the same today, yesterday, and forever. Mm. Yeah, well, in the way that he phrases it, that he is the Lord is the dwelling place for all generations— you know, thinking through what Moses spent a lot of time writing in those five books, he spent plenty of time 
writing down generations. He wrote down many different gene- genealogies. And so, you know, grounding, again, we're going to see the matter of creation here as well, but also grounding it in human history from one generation to the next through all of those people who, I mean, what, Genesis chapter 5, Adam lived this many years, he fathered this son, and then he died. I mean, those generations, one after another, people are dying, people are living. What remains constant for all of those people that Moses has written about, it is the Lord. That's the dwelling place that remains. Yeah, right, right, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, well, I think that's right to bring up the genealogies, too. I haven't thought about that, just the idea that that Moses lists all those those generations. That's a good thought. Sure. And I mean, it count, you know, then what are we going to give to our children? What is it that as I think about the generations that have come before me and what will I give to those who are coming after me to, to give them the truth of the Lord, his word, that is the best thing that I can give them. That's the eternal thing that I can give them, as opposed to my frailty that we're going to talk about here in, in a little bit with this psalm. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and that's probably, you know, uh, the genealogies that we find in the Bible are often things that we're going to skip over maybe because we can't read the names very well and things like that. But, uh, you know, those, those people are real, um, and they, they lived and they are part of our own heritage. Uh, and so, yeah, we're, whenever we are, uh, brought into the church, we're brought into that same heritage for, you know, that's gone on for thousands of years before us. So the Lord being the dwelling place in all generations, there's the, the matter of humanity. How in, what happens then in verse 2 to describe the eternal nature of God? Well, verse 2 takes us back to the creation before the mountains were formed. In fact, before creation, before the world was even created, uh, you are God. Uh, so again, just really reinforcing this idea that God is that, uh, that, that, that foundation that has been there even from before the beginning of time itself. Mm, yeah, and I think the mention of mountains, particularly, and then forming the earth or the world, these are the most, when we look at creation, these are the things that seem the most permanent, that seem the oldest. And so mm-hmm. Moses says, even before them, you are God. You are God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, with that eternal nature of God set in place in the first two verses, Moses then goes into verse 3, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. What's the, what's the move? What's Moses saying now? Yeah, obviously, and it's following the same shape as the book of Genesis at this point, because we had the creation, and then uh, 3, verse 3, gets us into uh, chapter 3 of Genesis with the fall of man into sin. And what is the result of the fall of man into sin? It's that uh, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That refrain we hear each Ash Wednesday um, you know, from the from the pastor as he puts the ashes on our forehead, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Um, and there are those words, and um, uh, often whenever we see the phrase, when I was reading this yesterday, if I was just to yank it out of context, I would think that when God says, return, O children of man, he's calling them to repentance. Uh, but here in context, what it's saying is uh, God is telling them basically die, <laughs> Um, go to the dust. Uh, this is the result. The wages of sin is death. Mm. So, I mean, talk more about the fact then that this is what God is is commanding, what God is saying here. I think this is going to come up again later. For example, verse 7, we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, You, we are dismayed. This this matter of death is not, it's not just something that sort of happens, but God is saying, this is what is going to happen, I don't wrestle with that a little bit. 
Yeah, sure. It always sounds wrong for us to say that God would cause something to die um, because we want to say, you know, God is good. God is loving. God wouldn't do something like that. Um, and it is true that God does not enjoy uh, doing something like that. God does not enjoy uh, consigning man to death, but God is just. Uh, and so God does uh, do that. And so we do have to remember that God does cause bad things to happen sometimes. Uh, for us to deny that would be to deny that uh, God is all-powerful. And so, yeah, God has the authority to, to take life away, and God does take life away. Uh, and for us on this side of heaven, it doesn't make sense all the time. Why would God do something like that? Um, and it's not really for us to answer why God would do something like that, but we can at least look at the word of God and say, oh, well, why, why do people die? People die because they're sinners. That's why, you know, uh, so what, what does God, uh, what is God going to do to sinners? Well, he's, he will destroy sinners, you know? Now, of course, we're going to get to the gospel with that eventually, you know, we're going to get to the mercy of God, the thing that he actually wants to do. But the fact is that God does cause our life to end. He is the one who decides when we die. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, when, we, when we're faced with that reality about God, that, that it's frightening, we're not sure what to do with it, the only response that, that works is to actually go to him for help, which is what Moses is going oh. to end up doing in this psalm, as he recognizes who God is and who he and the people of Israel are as sinners— what they do rightly deserve from God and what God does do in his, his justice, the only, the only thing to finally do is to turn to God for mercy. That's the only answer. No explanation or anything else will do. It's simply to turn to this one who, by all rights, is going to destroy you as a sinner. The only thing you have to, to rely on is his mercy. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He's the one that can take life away. Therefore, he's the one that we need to cry out to for help. Yeah. So verse 3, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. And then we have a little bit more of the eternal nature of God as Moses continues to meditate on this. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. How does that play into what Moses is saying? Well, you know, whenever we look at uh, time in general, um, we of course know how long a day is. We know how long a year is and things like that. Um, but we were not the ones that invented time. God is the one that invented time. Uh, he is the one who has those things in his hand. And so for him, a day doesn't feel like a day. A year doesn't feel like a year. Uh, and to him, this is no big deal. Um, you know, again, I, I look at, uh, you know, Jesus in the book of Revelation saying that he is coming again soon. Well, what, uh, you know, how soon is soon? Um, that was that was a couple thousand years ago that you know that Saint John penned those words, uh, but uh, but Jesus still says he's coming again soon. Uh, so so this this idea of time in the eyes of God and in the mind of God, different being is different than the way that time is in our minds is is all over the scriptures. Hmm. So Moses says, you know, a thousand years in God's sight are but as yesterday. It's it's as a day. This is a verse that is often brought out in terms of things that, when it comes to the book of Genesis and whether a day means day in Genesis chapter 1. Is that a, is that move legal? 
no. <laughs> no. Why not? No. Well, we can't do that uh, because, uh, you know, I, I, honestly, whenever people, whenever folks try to do that, um, they're, they're stretching it. They're trying to stretch and use a text that was trying to do one thing that was not intended to do that thing. God here is not trying to overturn our idea of how long a day is. Uh, and he's not trying to overturn our understanding of the word yom in Hebrew, which means day. Uh, it's, it's simply illustrating the fact that uh, time is different in the eyes of God than it is in ours. I look at it this way too. I think you can. I think you can make some correlation with this whenever you think of how people who have lived uh, several decades, uh, you know, who are who are older. Um, you know, for example, my my grandma turned ninety nine this year. She'll be a hundred next year, um, God willing. But um, the she's lived almost ten decades. You know, and here I am at 43. For me, 10 years seems like a long time, you know, that I, you know, I can think back 10 years and like, man, that's a long time ago. But even, but I, but, you know, for her, that's probably, that's, that's probably nothing, you know. Uh, and I, that's how I kind of look at this. Well, you think that, uh, you know, you've lived a long time because you're like 60, 70 years old. Well, guess what? God's been around before the world was even invented, before time was even invented, because he invented time. Uh, and so uh, the, the, idea, the idea here is that God is really kind of above our definition of how long a year is, how long a day is, and so forth. Yeah, that's right. And, and when it comes to the definition of day in the book of Genesis, we should let the book of Genesis determine that for us. And it does yes. there in Genesis chapter 1, when the Lord says, there was evening and there was morning this right. day. So, right, yeah. That's yeah, we the, have that definition of day, right? You know, and Moses gives that to us there in Genesis. That's correct, yeah. Right, and so here he's talking about something else, doing something different in Psalm 90 as he reflects on both the eternal nature of God and the frailty of man. We will keep reflecting on that with Moses here on Sharper Iron on the other side of the break. You're listening to Pastor David Vandercook this morning. Help us to study Psalm 90. We will be right back. Please stick around. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, July 18th. We're studying Psalm 90 with Pastor David Vandercook. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumel, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook, prior to the break, we were talking about Moses' move to talk about the frailty of man in comparison to the eternal nature of God. A thousand years in his sight is as a day. His conception of time is entirely different than ours. He created time. We are a part of that creation bound in time here. In verses 5 and 6, Moses continues, You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like 
grass that is renewed in the morning, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. What's Moses saying there? Yeah, again, this is building on the idea of the frailty of, of man, of man's life. Again, kind of a here today, gone tomorrow type of thing. Uh, and, you know, we can, we can see these illustrations really clearly and understand them. Uh, verse 5, you sweep them away as with a flood. Uh, you know, and maybe I, I think the first time I read this, I, I was thinking, well, maybe this has to do with, you know, Moses' experience with the flood. And I suppose you could make that, that move that Pharaoh's army chases Israel into the Red Sea, and then immediately they are swept over by the flood. Uh, and, you know, just like that, their, their life is ended. Um, but I think, you know, you could, you could look at other natural phenomena and see this. Um, you know, we had a, a, a devastating tornado come through our area a couple months ago, and uh, you had people who had beautiful homes that were there one second, and then just immediately they were gone, uh, you know, and, uh, and that idea that, um, uh, you know, again, our life is here today and, and can just as easily end by the end of the day. Uh, and again, also this grass thing, uh, I don't know how the weather's been where you are, but it's been uh, ridiculously hot uh, the last couple of weeks. I'll water my grass in the morning, and it'll look great until lunchtime. And then as the afternoon goes on, it starts to wilt already in the heat by the time you get to the end of the day. And that's after having a sprinkler on it for a good long while in the morning. Uh, you know, so so we get that idea that, um, that yeah, we have these, these, these wonderful things, even our, our lives, we can point to the things in this world, but... Uh, the Lord, again, has control over all of this, and just as, as easily as they are there, they can be swept away in, in an instant. Um, and it just, again, speaks to the uh, frailty of, of human nature, of humans, um, and, and I guess our possessions, too, for that matter, everything that we have. Mm. All right, so those are, that's the frailty of human nature in verse 6. As you said, then in verse 7, we start to contemplate, think about why this is the case. So what does Moses say? This We kind of reflected on this a little bit earlier. We are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. Yeah, well, it it, it points to the fact that, um, again, God is in control. He is the one that brings us uh, to an end. It's not just a, a random occurrence. Uh, it is the fact that uh, that God is doing that. And, and we should acknowledge the fact that oftentimes whenever we are um, stricken with such things, that uh, the reaction that we ought to have is that of repentance. Uh, and that's what we'll get as we get further on in this as well. But uh, we, should, uh, we should rather turn back to the, to the Lord um, and, and recognize his hand in these things. And, you know, we look at the first commandment, uh, which teaches us that we should have no other gods, that we should fear, love, and trust in him above all things. That fear is that, uh, is that fear that God is the one who can very well take our lives and away from us. Uh, and so because of that, uh, we should react to that and recognize that he d indeed is in control of even our days uh, in this world. Hmm. So then verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. So now, I mean, we've reflected on the eternal nature of God, and now we're getting a picture of that he, he sees everything. There's nothing hidden from him. Right, yeah. Uh, you know, of course, every time I teach the idea of of confession in in um, in catechesis here at the church, I always bring up the fact, obviously, that when we confess our sins, we're not telling God something He doesn't already know. 
uh, because he sees everything. You can't hide from him. I mean, that's what Moses, uh, not Moses, uh, Adam and Eve tried to do in the garden, right? I mean, God comes looking for them, and what do they try to do? They run away. They try to cover themselves up with fig leaves, um, but it is really pointless, uh, and the fig leaves are, are quite frankly useless because uh, God knows what they've done. Uh, there is no, uh, there is no escaping Him. He knows, He knows everything that we have, uh, we have done. They are our secret sins, as, as Moses writes here, in the light of your pres, are, are in the light of your presence. Yeah. Hmm. So nothing is hidden from God, not even our sins, and these sins bring about anger and wrath on the part of God. This is, I mean, again, this is not the picture of God we often contemplate. We don't, I don't, you know, as I think through my own sermons. I'm not sure the last time I've talked about God's wrath, at least with that term. Why, why do we need to talk about God's wrath? Well, I think we need to recognize uh, that, well, our people need to hear that uh, God really does hate sin. Um, he, really, he really doesn't just um, uh, spend all of his time affirming us and telling us we're doing a great job or something like that. That's not what God and his word are there for. They are there to, uh, God's word is there to call us to repentance uh, quite often. And, you know, so, I mean, obviously we don't want to boil the, the word of God, the scriptures into just simply an instruction book of how we are to live. But that really is a large part of what uh, the Bible is. Uh, it is. It is telling us what is right and what is wrong and what God expects out of us. And by extension, whenever we see what God expects out of us, we are going to be very quick to recognize the fact that we don't do what God has expected out of us. And also, the fact that God punishes people for sin throughout the scriptures, and he will continue to punish us for sin and discipline us, um, that, that, God's, that God's wrath really does um, uh, come out on us. Uh, you know, so we... Uh, whenever we we see these very explicit examples of God um, doing uh, bring about destruction upon people, you know, you think about um, Sodom and Gomorrah, or I think that's probably the best example I can think of. Sodom and Gomorrah. God pours out His wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because um, because of homosexuality, homosexual acts that are being done there, uh, and other rampant sin among them. Well. We should recognize the fact that God could very well do the same thing today uh, and very well might be doing the same thing today. Maybe we just aren't recognizing it sometimes, that that maybe some of the destruction that's coming upon us is because we are sinners. Um, and that's what God does to sinners. You know, and I think when we when we realize what the wrath of God is and that it is truly something we deserve— we, we end up understanding and appreciate and rejoicing all the more in what the gospel actually is. You know, I was just thinking about the way that Moses writes here, you have set our iniquities before you. I think it's a psalm of—I'm not sure if it's a psalm of David. Psalm 130, the psalmist there says, O Lord, if you would mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. So you've got, on the one hand, here God is setting the iniquities before him. On the other hand, God is going not going to mark our iniquities. He's going to forgive them. I think if we only have the, the thought of God not 
not marking our iniquities, we might get the idea that God just sort of ignores our sin, that he doesn't really, he just kind of looks the other way, he knows maybe something bad is happening, but he's not going to pay too close attention and just let us get away with it. That's not the right picture. Psalm 90 reminds us, no, God actually does something about those iniquities, and that, I mean, I think that really helps us to appreciate what happens with the gospel, that instead of us paying the price for those iniquities and getting what, what we deserve, that wrath ends up getting poured out on Jesus instead in our place, and that really heightens what God has done in the gospel. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I think that's right on. So Moses continues to, to reflect on this reality that God's wrath is what sinners deserve. He knows our iniquities. He sees our secret sins. And then in verse 9, he continues, All our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. That, so, so uplifting, Pastor Van <laughs> Yeah, right. Uh, it kind of reminds you of uh, um, Ecclesiastes a little bit, doesn't it? Does. It? Yeah. it does, it yeah. does, yeah. Uh, yeah. All of our... All our days pass away under your wrath. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's just the, um, uh, yeah, the the reality of of life that uh, that sometimes it does feel that way. I suppose. Yeah. That uh, that we're we're just kind of uh, our eye, our years come to an end like a sigh, like we're just ready to be done. Uh, you know, with with living in this uh, in this world. Yeah. But um, however, however long we make it, he, he actually gives <laughs> us some some numbers, yeah. which this is this is striking, isn't it? When you think about the life of Moses and when he could have written this, uh-huh. that here he, he's saying, you know, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Just those those numbers. I Again, I don't know when he wrote this, but I have a hard time imagining him writing it before he turned 80, because he turned, you know, he was 80 when he led the people out of of, right. of Egypt, yeah. and it, it's hard to imagine him writing this before that. So it's striking to, to see him write this as someone who's who's older than that. But even then, he still recognizes. I guess he 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 puts his life into the the right perspective here. Yeah, I think so. Well, and also, uh, you know, he says seventy and eighty here, and that was probably actually a fairly long lifespan for that period of time, anyway. Getting to seventy or eighty. And on top of that, when we consider this with the earlier verses that talked about a thousand years in your sight and God's sight are but as yesterday when it is past, we look at 70 and 80 and think, man, that's a long time. And uh, it's actually really not, uh, especially in the, uh, whenever we consider how, um, how God considers time being, being so much different. Um, but, uh, but yeah, even, even those long spans of time, the spans of time that we think are so long are filled with, uh, filled with toil and trouble. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and they're soon, and, then they're soon gone. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And, and we, we fly away, we fly yeah. away. So then there's this, I think it's a rhetorical question in verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? What is, what's Moses asking there? Well, yeah, I think it, I, I, I think it is a rhetorical question. And the answer is, uh, the expected answer is nobody, uh, and that's the problem. Nobody considers the power of the anger of God, which gets to our conversation earlier about the, you know, the importance of understanding God's wrath um, uh, and anger towards sin that, uh, that we don't consider, we often do not consider the power of God's anger. Mm. So then that's where the psalm then turns now to particular pet- petitions. As you said, all of Psalm 90 is ultimately a prayer to the Lord, 
But starting in verses 12 through the end of the psalm, there are very particular petitions that Moses offers. In verse 12, he starts, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. What's Moses praying here? Yeah, so to teach us to to number our days is uh, to consider that we're not going to live forever. Uh, There is going to be an end point uh, to our life. You know, either Christ is going to return, um, which could come at any moment, in our case, and obviously, you know, there, when Moses is writing this, this is before Christ comes. But for us, we look at Christ could come at any moment. So therefore, we should really consider that. We should consider the fact that, um, you know, that our days are numbered. Um, and so with that time, we should get a heart of wisdom. And where do we get a heart of wisdom from? Well, from the Word of God that leads us into all truth. That's where we get wisdom. So, uh, so teach us to remember the fact that dust we are, the dust we shall return, and we don't know when that's going to happen. So in the meantime, let's be about um, uh, gladly hearing and learning the Word of God. Mm, yeah, that's what. What do we do as we as we wait for? As you you know, we you brought up the prayer from Revelation, "Come, Lord Jesus," and He says He's coming soon. Well, what what do we do while we're waiting? We we learn wisdom from the Word of God, and we we number our days as as you said it. Our days are numbered, and just that that way of speaking. Well, who are they numbered by? They're they're numbered by the Lord. And that, that, I think, helps with this matter of numbering our days. We, we realize that we won't live in this life forever because God is the one who, as we've already heard in the psalm, can bring our life to an end, but he has those days numbered. There's, there's perhaps a little glimmer of hope there in the fact that he is the one who has numbered our days for the sake of, of hearing his word, believing in him, receiving his gifts. And so this is, again, the start of the, the turn of this psalm. Teach us to get or teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And then verse 13, return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants? How does the, the petition continue here? Yeah, I didn't notice this till just right now, and this should have been obvious, but uh, I think that 13 uh, contrasts very nicely with verse 3, where God said, return, O children of man, mm. where he was you know, telling them to return to dust. And here, we instead are praying to God to return to us uh, because, because of our sin, God has been justified in, uh, in, in leaving us, but now we are praying that he would uh, return to us in mercy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I, it's wrong to say that God was leaving us, I guess, but that God is, um, let's say, has removed his mercy from us because we had rejected him, and now we're asking for God to uh, return and have have pity on us, uh, and how long will you stay away, O Lord? You know, is kind of the mm. the question there. Mm. Kind of well, kind I mean, of the same thing. If you want to go to the Revelation too, how long, O Lord, until you um, uh, have vengeance on your enemies? You know, but yeah, sure. And you I mean you think about the life of Moses and the the matter of the golden calf in the book of Exodus comes to mind with this petition. It's not exactly you know the same thing, but there Moses does plead for God's mercy for the people of Israel, because he's ready to do precisely what's been talked about so far, to call the children of man to return to the dust for their idolatry. And Moses calls upon him, no, Lord, how long return to us, have pity. I mean, that that kind of plea mm-hmm. is, is there in Moses' own life. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, and I, I really like what you you said, and I, I'd never noticed it either, but the 
the way that God says return in verse 3, and now our response is to ask him to return, show us your pity, show us your mercy. That's that's fantastic to, to see that, that juxtaposition. And again, as we talked about earlier, when we recognize that this is what our sins deserve, you know, where where else can we go other than the one to the one who has authority over our lives? He's the only one that we can turn to, and Moses does precisely that here in verse 13. So, verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. There, I mean, again, this sounds more hopeful now, Moses now having returned to the Lord. What's he praying here? Yeah, um, so maybe that uh, this this might be a little bit of a, a stretch here, but earlier we were talking about the grass in verses 5 and 6. The grass is renewed in the morning. Uh, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. So I, it sounds like what I would look at here is say this prayer here is that that you know God would satisfy us in the morning with our steadfast love, but may we not wither like the grass does, you know, rejoice and be glad all our days, rather that we are filled with this steadfast love of God. Yeah, and um, maybe not a literal morning here, but obviously when we look at uh, just kind of the, the life of the Christian in connection with the life of the church as a whole, that each and every week we come to the Lord's house and we are uh, renewed by word and sacrament where we receive the gifts of the cross and that uh, that is that satisfaction that comes from receiving God's mercy. Not that our, our satisfaction is in happiness or something like that, but uh, our needs are satisfied by God there. And then we rejoice and be glad all our days. That is what strengthens us and carries us through each week uh, and by extension our entire life. I, I like the, the connection there with satisfying us in the morning. Thinking through some other psalms, Psalm 46, God will help her when morning dawns. The weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. I think that's Psalm 30, I think, or Psalm... Yeah, I think it's yeah. 30. Um, I mean, the, the morning throughout the scriptures is the time when God comes to help his people. And, I, you know, I don't... Yeah, your mercies oh. are new every morning. that uh, They never come to an end, right? Yeah. Right, right. And, I mean, I think the connection here to Psalm 90, so, so Lord, bring us back to that time when we, when we always do see your steadfast love. Give us satisfaction in that. And even, even if we do, you know, then get to the evening and there is this matter of, of withering, we have that, that continued hope in the truest Christian sense of that word hope, that the morning will come, and that that resurrection will come. I mean, that's the ultimate good thing that the Lord does in the morning, early on the morning in the first day of the week. He brings resurrection, so that we we continue to come back to that steadfast love of the Lord in the morning, no matter what we may... Fa- I, mean, I feel like I'm getting really figurative here. I want to be careful. But no matter what the what withering the evening may bring, there's always that hope that God's love comes new in the morning. Right, yeah. Well, and, and and you know, I think you can see that in uh, Luther's um, uh, evening and morning prayers. Yeah. You know, in the evening prayer, we pray for God's forgiveness. In the morning prayer, we pray that God would let His holy angel be with us. Uh, you know, they would keep us from all sin. You know, so so renew us in the morning again. You know, it's always that chance to uh, to to live a life according to God's word. Uh, that fresh start that happens each morning, yeah. Mm. 
So then verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Again, that, that's very reminiscent, or I suppose maybe Solomon is reflecting on this when he when he writes Ecclesiastes. You know, yeah, life under the sun looks meaningless, but Lord, make us glad in the in that time anyway. Yes, right. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it, well, and maybe you could look at, um, like, just the life of St. Paul, I guess. The fact mm-hmm. that he he's he's writing these many of his letters are written from prison. Uh, you know, you think about Philippians, and he's telling people to rejoice uh, throughout that whole book. It's a book of rejoicing, uh, and his context would not suggest it's a good time to rejoice. Uh, but yeah, this that's what this points us to, seemingly. Yeah, is I mean, is there something to this this matter of being afflicted and yet being glad? Is there a connection, perhaps, to the discipline of the Lord that that through such afflictions? He teaches us to to trust in him and and find the joy in him rather than in anything else. Oh, I think so. Yeah, definitely. Um, because we we do tend to, and I I touched on this in my my sermon this past Sunday that um, you know whenever whenever somebody when do, when do people use the term blessed? You know, when they say, "Oh, I, I I'm blessed." Well, usually it's it's only in the context of when good things happen. We don't tend to think about. Uh, the bad things in life being blessings. Um, yeah, I mean, you'll sometimes hear people talk about, you know, if somebody dies after fighting a long illness, they'll say that's that's a blessing because, you know, their uh, their time uh, their time of suffering has ended. But other than that, usually we don't see negative things in life as blessings. Um, but uh, but that's not the way that God would have us think, obviously, because the um, uh, you know. The fact is that uh, you, th- you look at the way the martyrs reacted, for example. How do they react to persecution? This is a great blessing. They were considered, uh, they considered it a, a blessing to be um, suffering along with the saints or be counted among those who are suffering. In verses 16 and 17, Moses concludes his prayer in Psalm 90. He says, Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. What is it? What does it mean for God's work to be shown to His servants and His children? And what does it mean for our works, the works of our hands, to be established? Yeah, first of all, with God's works to be shown to His children, you know, again, we can look throughout the lifetime of Moses, in particular, the time of the uh, Exodus. He's bringing these plagues upon uh, the Egyptians and. There, the people see the work of God, and that He is bringing them out with a um, uh, a mighty hand, an outstretched arm. Uh, they see all the wondrous deeds He's doing. They see the deliverance He gives them at the Red Sea, and so forth. So, you know, there, those the people of the Old Testament saw the works of God being done right before their eyes, and they recounted them for their children, or at least they were supposed to. That was part of the problem, as you get later on in the Old Testament. But they they recounted them for their children so that they could see what God had done. And so, but now that finds a greater fulfillment in Christ because the work of God that is done, um, that is shown to his servants and his glorious power to his children ultimately is done at the cross in Christ Jesus and in the resurrection of Christ. So um, this is really a prayer for Christ to come at that point, you know, let your work be shown to your servants, yeah. Mm. Now, then what does the the matter of our work being established, as the prayer concludes, what does that mean? 
Yeah, uh, I was thinking about, and I just thought of this this morning too. So um, it was after after the feeding of the five thousand. In uh, I think it's John's account of the feeding of the five thousand. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, it's it's whenever we get to the after that um, the the people ask Jesus, "What must we be doing to be doing the work of God?" And uh, and Jesus says, uh, "Believe in the one whom He has sent," or something like that. I may be I may be paraphrasing or quoting that incorrectly. But uh, you're, you're right that it's in John six, and and it you're yeah. This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. That's John there you six twenty nine. Yeah. There we go. That's that's what I was grabbing for there. Uh, you know, so there is the the work of uh, the work of our hands. What ultimately is uh, there is that 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 is the greatest good work that we can do, and that is to hear the word of the Lord. Um, but in addition to that, also uh, it does point to the works that we do to benefit others. And that kind of shifts my focus in thinking about like Matthew 25, where we have Jesus describing this, uh, this separating of the sheep and the goats. And, you know, we'll just talk about the sheep, you know, that, that Jesus looks at the sheep and says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was in prison and you visited me and so forth. And they all say, well, we don't remember doing any of those things. And Jesus says, well, anything, any of these things you did for the least of these uh, brethren, you did it for me. Um, and the idea there is that the works of the Christian are not works that the Christian is always cognizant that he is doing, mm. um, you know, but rather uh, they come naturally as the fruit of faith. Yeah, that's right. We got about a minute left here, Pastor Vandercook. Help us to wrap things up on Psalm 90. A very realistic psalm. It puts us to it plainly. What's the hope that we have from praying this psalm with Moses? Well, there is there is obviously some confession here, and the, the confession is that because of our sin, God is right to be angry with us. Uh, you know, the whenever we prepare for the Lord's Supper, for example, we can go through Luther's questions in the Catechism. That's a good aid uh, for that. And the first question right off the bat is, do you believe that you're a sinner? And you say, yes, I do. Well, why? Because I look at the Ten Commandments and I see that I'm a sinner. I look at God's Word and I see that I'm a sinner. But also, um, this psalm directs us to look to the one who is uh, righteous in being angry with us uh, and teaches us to turn toward him because he doesn't change. Uh, we can count on him that he will always be there ready and desiring to grant us the forgiveness of sins, to give us his mercy. That is what God desires to do more than anything. Pastor David Vandercook serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumel, Arkansas. He's been helping us today to study Psalm 90. Pastor Vandercook, thanks for being our guest today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Reflecting on this hymn, reflecting on this psalm, the hymn writer Isaac Watts prays, O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, be thou our guard while troubles last, and our eternal home. And indeed, the Lord is our eternal home, our Savior in Jesus Christ. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Psalm 90, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.